In 2 Kings chapter 2, Elijah is about to be taken up to heaven. So he's spending one last day with his student, his disciple, Elisha. And in 2 Kings chapter 2, in verse 9, they cross the Jordan River and Elijah asks Elisha, he says, what can I do for you before I am taken from you? So Elisha has one opportunity to request something, one last opportunity. So his request, let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. That's a bold thing to ask. Uh, Eugene Peterson, who uh, wrote the message, it's a kind of a paraphrased version of the Bible, the way that he translates it is let your life be repeated in mine. Maybe that helps you understand what Elisha is asking. Let your life be repeated in mine. Let me inherit a double portion of your spirit. We're looking, we started last week, we're looking this week at this ancient disciple-teacher relationship between Elijah and Elisha. We, last week we looked at how uh, Elijah calls Elisha from 1 Kings chapter 19 and invites him into a new future. And we're going to continue studying that this morning. And part of the reason why we're doing that, because here at Pine Tree, our vision and our mission statement is to make, can you say it with me? Make, mature, and what? Multiply. We're way off on that. I did, that was not part of my notes anyway, so we'll try that another day. Make, mature, and multiply faithful followers of Jesus. Our strategy is to make disciples here in Longview, the greater Longview area, wherever it may be, with who's your one. We've asked you to have a one and to begin a discipling relationship. As we mature as disciples, we help others grow in Christ, but we're also trying to grow ourselves. We're all a part of the maturing process, so I asked you last week, where is discipleship taking you? Where is it leading you? So we're looking at Elijah and Elisha, and we're learning some elements from their relationship and how Elijah discipled Elisha. So he asked for a double portion of the Spirit. He asked for your life repeated in mine. When I was in my early 20s, I kind of wanted something similar. I fell in love with cross-cultural mission work, and I had, I didn't ever request this, but now that I've read 2 Kings chapter 2, I think this is what I wanted. I wanted a double portion of the life of a missionary, the spirit of a missionary. I heard stories like David Livingston, which I've shared before in a sermon. He was a missionary in Africa, and when he died, they sent his body back to London and buried his heart in Africa, because that's how dedicated he was. I heard stories like that, and I was like, yeah, that's what I want. I heard a story about a man named Nathan Barlow, who was a missionary in Ethiopia. He had problems with his teeth, so he had to fly home to have surgery, and while he was home, he requested that he have all his teeth removed and then replaced so that he'll never have another problem again and he won't have to leave the mission field. I would hear stories like that. I read them in books, or missionaries would come home and tell stories like that, and I wanted that. I was like, I want a double portion of the spirit of a missionary. When I was in college, I went on a couple of those spring break campaigns with ACU, went to the Dominican Republic, and I saw you know, what poverty looks like in a third world country compared to how we live. You know, so something was sparked in me. Jessica, my wife, spent a lot of time in Belize, and I went to Belize myself. 
as a college student, I went with two other friends. We went to Tanzania, Africa. Uh, and man, that trip was, was wild. We had no idea what we were getting into, but thankfully we lived and survived the day at home. We just kind of went on our own on that one. I went to Honduras four or five different times, and we just did all these trips, and we were seeing poverty, and we were seeing people in need, and we just had this strong desire to do something about it, to become missionaries, but we didn't really know how that would work, and then all of a sudden, uh, we were invited by a group of missionaries to move to Rwanda, Africa, and to join their mission team to work with street kids, and all of that just seemed like this huge open door for us. An answered prayer. So after some prayer, we, we said, yes, we're going to go. We quit our jobs, and we gave up what we thought. We were giving up everything to go and be missionaries in Rwanda. At the time, I didn't know it. But I was, you know, I was younger. I was naive. And I was arrogant. I thought I knew what I was doing. I thought I knew what people needed I thought I was going to go over there and save the world. I had high expectations. But as a follower of Jesus, I was still kind of in the shallow end. Still surface level. And what I didn't know when we boarded that plane with a one-way flight, we didn't have a return ticket. You know, that makes a big difference. That's the first time I had gone somewhere that far away without a return ticket. I had no idea that God was going to have to take me much deeper. I was about to go on a journey out of the shallow end and into the deep end. But I wanted that double portion of the spirit of a missionary. And that's what Elijah, Elisha requests from Elisha. Let's look back at 2 Kings chapter 2 and verse 1. And we're just going to read through the story that Jack read for us. And I was going to have you stand, but since he already did that, I'll just let you sit down and we'll read through this. Verse 1. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal. So they're traveling. That's what disciples do. They follow close to the steps of their teacher. Elijah said to Elisha, Stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. Elijah is giving him the opportunity... This is their last day together. He said, you can stay here. You don't have, we don't know, I don't know where I'm going. You don't have to step out of your comfort zone. If you want, you can stay here. The option is yours. I think as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we always live within the temptation of just staying comfortable. Staying on the surface, staying in the shallow end, because we don't want to experience discomfort or any pain or anything like that. So, Elisha, it's your opportunity to stay here if you want. But Elisha responds in verse 2, he says, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. The company of prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep silent. I'm reading from the NRSV. The NIV says, yes, I know, so be quiet. Elijah said to Elisha, stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. So now for the second time, God is sending Elijah to somewhere else, and he is turning to his disciple and saying, stay here. I don't know if he's testing him or if he's just giving him the option. You don't have to keep going. I do, but you don't have to. So he's telling him, stay here again. 
And again, Elisha responds in verse 4, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. The company of prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said, Do you know that today the Lord will take your master away from you? He answered, Yes, I know, so be quiet. About two weeks ago, I was putting my five-year-old daughter to bed, and I read her the story. And when I got to verse 5 and read it, she just started laughing really hard. And I said, what's so funny? And she said, Elisha is really sassy. Because the way he breathes, is, yes, I know, be quiet. And I was like, yeah, he is maybe a little sassy with these prophets. But I think it's because they're reminding him that he's got a hard road ahead. It's going to be an emotional day, so he's like, just be quiet and let me deal with it. So for a third time in verse 6, Elijah said to him, stay here, the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. So you see this progression that's taking place. On his last day, Elijah goes from Gilgal, and he's going to go to Bethel, Jericho, Jordan. Those are all important places in Hebrew history, especially the Jordan. And now for a third time, Elijah says to Elisha, stay here. Again, you don't have to keep going, but Elisha always chooses to keep going. All, the choice is always his. And he says, the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went off. Now we have 50 men of the company of prophets, and they're also going. And they stood at a distance from them, and they both were standing by the Jordan. Elijah took his mantle, he rolled it up, struck the water, the water parted to one side and to the other until the two of them crossed on dry ground. So you have all these prophets standing at the Jordan, but only Elijah and Elisha cross over. And everybody else stays on that side. So Elisha has followed Elijah all the way. And then we get back to where we started in verse 9. And when they cross the river... Elijah turns to his disciple Elisha and he says, Okay, what can I do for you before I'm taken from you? But notice something about this story. This is the first time that Elijah asks Elisha this question. He doesn't ask it to him in Jericho or Bethel or any of the other places they had been. But he finally asks him this question because I think he sees how committed Elisha is. He had the option to stay behind, but he doesn't. He keeps going. And once Elijah sees his dedication, then he says, what can I do for you? I think for any of us who are faithful people, who read the Bible, who want to live for God, if we know the story of Elijah, especially 1 Kings chapter 18, how he stood up against the prophets of Baal and had so much faith and God worked so powerfully through him, any of us would love to have a double portion of the spirit of Elijah. But I think most of us would love to have a double portion of the spirit of Elijah back in Gilgal. Or maybe Jericho or Bethel. But the only way Elisha is going to even have the option to ask the question is if he keeps following. So you see the progression that takes place. It's like Elisha keeps going deeper with his teaching. They were in the shallow, on the surface, and he doesn't need to ask the question there, but he stays with them and he keeps going, and then he's able to ask the question. So, you know, I wanted a double portion of the spirit of a missionary, and so we had an opportunity, and we moved to 
Rwanda. The first day we were there, we were really jet lagged, really tired. Our plan was to go to immigration, apply for a work permit, so that we could stay in the country legally for one year. And on the first day, the missionaries we were working with said, oh, by the way, another family took the work permit, so y'all are going to have to do a visitor visa. Which means that every three months, we had to leave the country, go to a bordering country, and then come back and get another three-month visitor visa. So we're like, okay. Well, she would have told us that before we left, but maybe there's a reason why they didn't tell us that. So we're going to accommodate. We'll go with that. So the first three months was all about learning the language, was about learning the culture, and, and we began doing some of the work and working with some of the street kids. And like I already mentioned, this is the first time I have gone out of the country and I didn't have a return ticket. So we started to experience a little bit of culture shock. And not just the kind of culture shock like this is different, but like, hey, we're stuck here. We don't know our way around. And there were some long and lonely, dark nights. So the type of culture shock where you really feel that physically. And then, on top of all that, we found out Jessica was pregnant. That wasn't a part of the plan. So those first three months, it went quite differently than we thought it was going to. But what we realized was to get the spirit of a missionary to really reach people cross-culturally. It's hard. It's not as glorious as it sounds when people tell stories about David Livingston and Nathan Barlow, or missionaries come home and give you the highlights, but they leave out some of those dark, tough times. So those first three months came and went, and we left, and we went to Tanzania, came back two days later, and as we're going through the airport, we're expecting to get another stamp on our passport, giving us three more months. And instead, the guy's like interrogating me, the officer. And he gave me my passport. He didn't stamp it. And he said, you have one week to go talk to immigration. Okay, so we got our friend Charles Mapindo, who was Rwandan, and he went with us. We went to the immigration office, and they took our passports. If you've ever left the country, if you're smart, you keep your passport with you. Okay, they took our passports. We don't even know who they are. And they said, we'll give them back to you in a few weeks. So we're in this country, we don't have our passports, my wife is pregnant, you know, everything that we have been told about being a missionary wasn't starting to sound so glorious at that point. We had a little scooter, it looked like a moped, that's how we got around. If you've ever seen Dumb and Dumber, we look like Harry and Lloyd riding around on a scooter all over Rwanda, but you know, I had over three months of practice, so I could, it, that thing would go pretty fast, and I would weave in and out of traffic, and I would drive like a Rwanda. And one day... And, you know, Jessica had been sick in the morning, afternoon, evening, sickness, the type of stuff that happens when you're pregnant. And so she wasn't out of the house much, and I just said, you got to get out of the house. It was a hot day. It was winter here in America, but really hot there. I was like, let's just go eat somewhere. So we hopped on our scooter, and we were, I was flying down, passing people, and we got on this brick road. We were going to downtown Chicago. And when you pass somebody, you just give a little honk and go. There was this truck that was going really slow, so I started to pass him. I pulled back on the throttle, I honked, and then all of a sudden he started turning left. And then, I don't know what happened after that, I just woke up and I was on my back on the ground. My helmet was over here, the scooter was over there, and Jessica, my pregnant wife, was over here on her back. And we had had a wreck. So I quickly went over to her, she's like, I think I'm okay, and I got her, I got a scooter, we got over the side of the road, but I'd seen this happen quite a bit. There was a lot of wrecks in the water. Go figure, they drive crazy, and that's just what happened. 
But every time there was a wreck, you know, people walked a lot. So a crowd would gather. That's entertainment for them. They just stand over you and watch and people's bones are broken and stuff like that. So I went over to the side of the road and this crowd gathered and they're all looking at us and they're pointing at me. And I, like, all my adrenaline was rushing and I, I couldn't, all my language school stuff wasn't working so I couldn't figure out what they were saying. And I looked down and I had blood all down the side of my arm and the side of my leg and they were pointing and they were saying the word for hospital in Kenya Rwanda. And I looked at them and I said, no, no. Like, I have been to these hospitals, but I am not going to a hospital. <laughs> we had done some hospital visits, and they were 20 or 30 sick patients with different illnesses in one room. So I wasn't going to do that. And then I looked over at Jessica, and she was really pale, and all of a sudden her eyes rolled back in her head, and she just passed out. And I kind of caught her as we were going to the ground. So I'm sitting on the ground, and all these people speaking a different language. It's really hot. They're pointing at me. I'm bleeding all over the place. My pregnant wife has passed out in my arms. We didn't know if our child was okay. And in that moment, I remember just sitting there on the side of the road, angry. And I was angry with God. Like, why would you let this happen? I thought we gave up everything to come here and to serve and to save these people and do these amazing things and have these amazing stories, but the story didn't sound so amazing. So I... Got up, I called for a cab, it took us home, somebody else came to pick up our scooter later. About 12 hours later, a doctor came by and did a sonogram, the baby was okay, and aside from some, some bruising and a couple of cracked ribs, you know, I was okay too, we were okay. And then a few weeks after that, we get a call that our passports are ready, so we went and picked those up, and Charles Mapendo, my friend, pulled him out of his package, and he said, they gave you two weeks. Not three months, they gave you two weeks. So you're going to have to leave the country again and then come back and maybe we'll try to make it work this time. So we just met with the other missionaries. I like, you know, the wheels are off. This thing isn't working. There's no way we can keep leaving and coming back. We can't afford that. You know, at the time, Jessica couldn't do that kind of travel. So we just said, we're going home. We thought we were going to be in it for the long haul. We thought 10 years later we're going to come back to America and we're going to tell these crazy stories. Instead, we were going home, and I was, I was bitter. I was frustrated. But I went arrogant. I went thinking that I knew what I was doing, and in the process, I believe God humbled me. He took me to deeper waters, to deeper realities. When Elisha asks for a double portion of the spirit of Elijah, he doesn't get to ask that question early on in the journey, but he sticks with his teacher, all the way to the end, and then he gets to ask for a double portion. Look at chapter 2, verses 10 and 12. Elijah responds, you've asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, it will be granted you. If not, it will not. So all you have to do is see me. When God comes to get me, if you see it, you're going to get that double portion. As they continue walking and talking, a chariot of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them, and Elijah ascended, and a whirlwind into heaven. Often God is associated with fire and whirlwind as a theophany, so this is an appearance of God taking Elijah to heaven. Elisha kept watching and crying out, Father, Father of the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, but when he could no longer see him, he grasped his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. So he sees it. He said, if you see it, 
my life will be repeated in yours. You will receive a double portion of my spirit. And he saw it. And then you look at the rest of Elisha's ministry, and it's almost parallel to Elijah's. He becomes like his teacher. He reflects them. They have a very similar ministry. They both uh, raise a widow's son. They both prophesy the death of Jezebel. They both multiply food miraculously. They both part the waters of the Jordan. If you keep reading in chapter 2, Elisha does the same. And they're both addressed as my father, my father at the end of their earthly lives. They're both similar to each other because Elisha becomes like Elijah. His life repeated in Elisha. The disciple becomes like the teacher. He's a reflection of the one he trained under for that long. And in chapter 2, there's this progression that takes place. And I believe as followers of Jesus, you know, based on my experience and what I've observed of experiences of others, there's a progression in our faith journey as well, or at least there should be. And that journey, I think, always comes back to and is rooted in the Word of God. As we study God's Word, this is how God communicates to us. At some point, there's got to be a desire to go deeper. Often people will talk about preachers and say, well, they don't go deep enough. They go deep because some people just have this desire to go deeper, whatever that may mean or look like. We don't do it just for the sake of knowledge. You know, knowledge is important. But you study the Word of God to apply it. Like at some point, as you study, there's got to be a place where we say, now we start to live it out. Now we start to love people. Love people that aren't like us. Love people who are difficult to love, to be omniscient, to be calm people who can respond to hostility, you know, to be the type of people that reflect Jesus. So we study the Word and we get deeper in the Word so that we can apply it and live it. And as we apply it, we have experiences. You know, for me, applying the Word of God at that point in my life was to say yes to a call to go to Africa. And that may not be the same for you. In fact, for most people, it's not to move and go somewhere else, but the experience might be just right here. You start working with caring, sharing, or highway 80, or something like that, and you're trying to put God's Word into practice, and you start to have these experiences. But through experiencing God's Word, there's always this deconstruction that takes place. A few weeks ago, I was asked to go to Harding University to speak at a chapel service for missionary students. So these are students who are dedicated. They're planning on becoming missionaries. They're about to spend the summer in some country. So I told our whole story of Rwanda, and I told them kind of what to expect and all this stuff. And we did a little question and answer deal afterwards. And one of the students asked me, what would you do different? If you could go back and do it over again, what would you do different? I said, if I could do anything different, I would do it totally different. I wouldn't have even gone but I'm glad I didn't know how it was going to turn out. Because I wasn't God. But I'm glad that I went. I think some good work was accomplished. I think people were helped. But for my own faith journey, it was a very formative time in my life. And what I told these students was, I went thinking I knew everything. 
And I know what people need. I know how to be a good missionary. I know what cross-cultural missions is all about. And I left thinking, what I thought I knew, I don't know. I don't know anything. That's deconstruction. Like that's when you start to really try to live out God's Word. And as you experience it, there's a humbling that takes place. And maybe what you thought you knew, you didn't know. And I think God helps us become humble people through that. He strips down our pride... But he doesn't leave us there. There's always a, a reconstruction that takes place. And he brings us back to him. But we're never the same people. And we keep going back to the word. When I came home, after I kind of got through this phase of being frustrated and a little bit bitter, continued to study the word. And I just had this thought, this feeling like, you know, if I can't learn to be a missionary in my own country, in my country of origin, how can I go be a missionary somewhere else? And then, because of my experience trying to be a missionary in another country, I now view my own country from a totally different lens. So this whole experience was God taking me deeper, stripping me down, deconstructing me, and then reconstructing with a different lens. And you're never the same. In these phases, whatever you may be in, will keep repeating itself throughout your life. But each time, if you're open and you're willing, God's going to keep taking you deeper. You know, Jesus was the deepest person who ever lived. And he only lived to be 33. But as followers of Jesus, we're trying to become deep people. Like he is. And we're calling people into deeper places, into deeper kingdom realities. Look at John chapter 21. I love John 21 because this is after Jesus has died on a cross and he's resurrected. He's starting to appear to his apostles. In verse 15, he has a conversation with Peter. And three different times, Jesus asks Peter, do you love me? And all three times, Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Peter's kind of hurt by this. He's offended that Jesus keeps asking him this. Well, Peter had denied Jesus three times. So Jesus asks him three times, do you love me? And he's telling him to feed my sheep. And then look at verse 18. Jesus says, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you used to fasten your own belt and go wherever you wish. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will fasten a belt around you and take you where you do not wish to go. This is kind of a cryptic verse. Three times, do you love me? Yes, I'm dedicated. I'm, I'm all in. I'm progression of asking him this. And then he tells him, as you grow deeper into this thing, it's going to get harder. The pain is only going to increase. And then in parentheses, in verse 19, John tells us, he said this to indicate the kind of death by which he would glorify God. The road wasn't going to be easy for Peter, but in the end, it's going to be for the glory of God. But what I really love is the end of verse 19. After this, he said to him, follow me. This is not the first time that Jesus has asked Peter to follow him. About three years earlier, he found Peter and his friends, his brother, fishing. And he said, follow me. And they quit their jobs and they gave up everything to follow Jesus. 
and what they thought they knew, they didn't know. And Jesus took them on this journey. And it took a long time for them to catch on and truly understand this kingdom picture. And then after, Peter has one of his worst mistakes, denies Jesus three times. Now, as a resurrected Messiah, he says, follow me again. Peter's already a disciple. And this isn't, this isn't just to reinstate Peter. This is to take him deep. You've already started the journey of following me. So I'm going to ask you again, follow me. And Peter is taking his much deeper reality. Now, I've mentioned Rwanda a lot this morning, so I might as well mention this. In 1994, uh, Rwanda is well known for uh, genocide that took place. In fact, it's such a small country that most people probably wouldn't even know what Rwanda is had it not been for this genocide. Almost a million people were murdered by their own country. They had two different tribes, and one tribe was trying to completely annihilate another tribe. It was brutal, it was bloody, and it was really sad. For those of you who are alive and were watching the news, you probably saw glimpses of this each night. Before the genocide took place, Rwanda was polled, and over 90% of the people claimed to be Christian. How can a country that has 90% Christian commit a genocide? Well, their allegiance was less Christ and more to their own tribe. It was Christians who were doing the killing. So you could say they were not deep, committed followers, disciples of Jesus. At the end of 1994, there was a man named Robin Mark, and he was watching the news, and they were doing this year-end review. They were going back over the Rwandan genocide, and they were talking about all the other stuff that had happened in '94. And he said that, you know, he just felt the sadness come over him, which is pretty much what happens to me every time I watch the news. Like, it's just sad. There's a lot of horrible things that take place. A lot of violence. So he's watching this year interview, and he just prayed, kind of a bold prayer to God, and he said, God, are you really in control? What world, what kind of world are we living in? And he said he didn't hear an audible voice of God, he just kind of felt within his spirit that he got an answer to that prayer, that question. He felt like God was confirming, I am in control. But the kind of days that we're living in are the type of days where we need people in the spirit of Elijah to step up with integrity and to fight for the kingdom of God. Not physically fight, but to live our lives so closely to Jesus that we reflect the Holy Spirit that's inside us. So Robin Mark sat down after that moment took place, and he wrote out the words of the song, These Are the Days of Elijah, which we sing quite often, and I believe we're singing it as our closing song this morning. And I, that song is kind of like a declaration. Like we acknowledge the type of the times we live in, you know, in our country. We're constantly reminded that Christianity is on the decline, and sometimes life doesn't look too great. But God has called us to embrace the future like we talked about last week. And he's calling us deeper. And not just the spirit of Elijah, but in the spirit of Jesus. So how is God taking you deeper as a follower of Jesus? And as you disciple your one, 
How are you taking your one deeper? This morning we're going to sing a few more songs.